Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Mason, a professor of genomics, physiology, and biophysics at Whale Cornell Medicine and the director of WorldQuant Initiative. He has been principal investigator or co-investigator of seven NASA missions and projects. Today, we are going to discuss his recent book, The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. Chris, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Chris, talk us through some of the work that you do in your lab that led to a number of concepts that you discuss in this book. My pleasure. So we work a lot in my laboratory on the clinical genetics approaches for patients at the hospital. And we wanted to bring a lot of those approaches to precision medicine of astronauts, basically, to take the latest and most you know, cutting edge approaches in molecular biology and in clinical genetics and, and really tracking people to make sure they're safe or responding to therapies and bring that to bear for some of the missions with NASA and more recently with SpaceX and also with Axiom Space and other uh, commercial spaceflight providers. So we really, uh, we, we think all the time about interpreting the genome, which is all your, your DNA, uh, looking at epigenetics or small t- chemical tweaks to your regulation and also how genes are activated, what happens when you undergo chemotherapy or really any stress. And wanted to, uh, I've always been, I went to space camp when I was a kid. So I've always wanted to understand extreme outliers in biology and genetics. And astronauts are among the most interesting outliers and, and things I've been interested in since I was a kid. I'm very keen to discuss the findings of the twin study, mm-hmm. uh, an examination of the impact that a nearly full year in space on astronaut Scott Kelly, and using his identical twin brother, Mark, as a control. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how do our bodies change in the harsh and unfamiliar environment of space? It is hard on the body. No, no question. The body in the very first day actually has what people often call moon face or puffy face because if for, several liters of fluid goes from your lower body to your upper body and it kind of pushes out on all your organs and your skin. So you get kind of puffy is the first problem. I also call it chicken legs is another thing it's called. So, uh, you, you, you know, it is, so that, you know, creates a bit of a discomfort and pain, but eventually it subsides and the body is extraordinarily plastic. You know, you have that is one quick change. But the, the thing that that's been known for decades, but what we really wanted to look at is at a molecular and genetic level, what's happening inside of astronauts bodies. And this is what was really pioneering about the study was the depth and the breadth of analyses that we brought to bear, but also the fact that we had an identical twin who was staying on earth as a control. And so you don't normally have that for an astronaut study, but we could see that his telomeres got longer in space, which are these, you know, the caps on the end of your, your chromosomes that keep your DNA intact. Uh, actually, we thought they would get shorter because of uh, the stress of spaceflight and the radiation. But he actually got they got a little bit longer, so it indicates the fountain of youth in some ways in space. And we saw all these genes, almost like fireworks of genes, activated for things like DNA repair and the immune system activation. So it indicated that the body's really adapting to the strain, as if it's almost getting an infection, but also adapting to the radiation. You can see it in the blood that the body's activating all of its repair enzymes. And uh... There were some findings about the impact of radiation also? Yes, we found, for example, you know, for the most part, the genes were activated to repair the damage from radiation. We also could see that in the blood, there's some there's clones that carry different mutations. It's what's called clonal hematopoiesis, and hematopoiesis is the genesis of blood in your bone marrow. And we could see that these clones were changing during flight, actually. In some cases, you know, another interesting direction is that his 
clone that was looks like a mutated clone in his bone marrow for Scott got went, went down in flight, meaning there were less of those cells around, sort of like cleaning up the garbage uh, of his mutated cells in flight, which is really surprising because it either means that the lifestyle is contributing to a healthier state or that radiation is killing off maybe those cells that were just about to die and maybe kicked them up, kicked the can over and then cleaned out the body that way too. So we think both those things are in play. An interesting point that you report in this uh, study is uh, when Scott came back, his skin uh, was uh, itchy. Perhaps it was the weight of the of, of the clothes because enough. in the space, okay, you are wearing something, but the weight is not there. No pressure, right, exactly. So even the weight of clothing was too much for his body to bear upon return to Earth. So, and it led to a rash and we saw a spike of cytokines when he landed. So it was this really extraordinary response to the body having to deal with gravity again, including just the weight of uh, your shirt or your pants. So he broke out in a rash everywhere that he had any clothes touching. So he kind of had to walk around the house nude for a couple of days to, to just kind of adapt back to being on earth. Uh, you know, some people do that for recreational purposes. He had to do it for medical purposes. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Now, one of the motivations of this 500-year plan that you outline in the book is that uh, we are the only species that understands extinction. And yes. we must try to avoid dying. Uh, we must try to avoid going extinct as a species. Talk us about this motivation. This is uh, the motivation for my entire career, actually, is that I think this is a, a duty that I I feel. It's not a, a curiosity or a meandering career or a hope. This is a, a real ethical duty that I propose that we have as a species. And so you think of, you think of, you say duty, it's often kind of a boring word. You're like, oh, duty, what are we going to talk about? But it's actually one of the most important things we have as a species is to have a sense of individual duty. Like you have a duty maybe to your family, to a religion, to your country. You can have, you can have a real strong sense of duty to many things. But I think what has been lacking throughout all of humankind's history is a real sense of a species-wide sense of duty, a purpose that we can really, I think, all agree to and then act upon. And, and this is something that is, I argue, it's one of these duties that is activated upon the moment of understanding, whereas other duties in your life can be chosen, uh, including family and even religion and, and country. But this is one that because we have this ability to understand extinction and to look into the future and plan that far ahead, hundreds or thousands of years ahead, this is a unique, and as far as I know, unique in the entire universe, ability and duty to serve as guardians and shepherds of life. Not only our own, so some of this is just selfish. It'd be nice if we survive for more than you know, the next hundred years. Hopefully we'll survive for millions or billions of years. But it is also that no other species is, is wandering around thinking about how do I preserve other life forms. Uh, it, so if we like anything on Earth, including ourselves, we have to eventually go to Mars and to another solar system. So Mars is not plan B. Mars is just plan A if you want to eventually leave the solar system. The sense of duty, uh, it seems, is already there. For instance, our uh, efforts to, to, to put boots on Mars, as you say in your presentations, perhaps that is also part of that sense of duty. Uh, and also, the first phase that you outline in the book is about looking at our genome and then trying to improve on that. So that is kind of uh, already happening. And the timeline that you put over here is from 2010 to 2020. So has the first phase successfully happened? It has. In fact, it's even uh, so I wrote the draft of this book as bullet points 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago. 
And so that's why phase one just finished, because when I started my laboratory at Cornell, I thought, what can I reasonably think will happen over the next, uh, well, I put for 500 years, actually. So I made a plan for the lab uh, for what I anticipate to occur. And we've actually been more successful than I could have imagined in 2010. We accomplished far more you know, than I would have thought in medicine. We've accomplished, we, have, we now have many more tools for genome editing than you could have imagined. Chris, CRISPR was barely known in 2010. Now it's a kitchen table word. And CRISPR, for those who don't know, is, it's, a, it's a tool in, in genetics that lets you cut and paste or cut and basically edit out pieces of DNA inside of cells. Stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats, which is really just a bacterial immune system that would respond and cut and swap out pieces of DNA for an immuno, immunological memory in bacteria. So the enzymes like Cas enzymes are all actually derived from bacteria that we use therapeutically now in humans. And, and this is not too crazy of a thought. We do the same thing with antibiotics. We kind of ha have the bacteria of the world help us with the therapies. Same thing's happening here. And CRISPR, you know, couldn't have foreseen how easy and, and ubiquitous CRISPR would have come uh, 10 years ago. But now it has led to a Nobel Prize and, and hundreds of clinical trials uh, using it therapeutically. And even just this past year, CRISPRing people somatically, meaning just their cells in their body that won't get passed on to the next generation, getting rid of beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease by actually editing the genome of the patients while they're walking around. So, you know, phenomenal success in terms of how we can discover tools for editing genomes and then apply them to cure diseases. Uh, this leads us nicely to my next question. The title of the book is The Next 500 Years, mm -hmm. Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. Mm -hmm. Should we even be talking about engineering life? And you just mentioned CRISPR and you just briefly mentioned what it does. It enables us what to do. So should we be doing this? I think we should. Well, we already, I guess I would say to some degree, you know, it, it's too late because we already uh, are doing this. You know, we, we um, it's not, uh, should we be, it's, it's, we are, should we be doing more of it? Should we be doing it differently? Should we do less of it? So, I, you know, the cat is out of the bag or the shoe is off the foot or, or the spacecraft has fallen from the sky, whichever metaphor you'd like to use, it's already happening. So I, I think the big question now is how and when and where should we do it? And, and, you know, and I think for therapeutically, the answer is let's do more of it because we're literally curing diseases by editing life, by editing genomes in patients today, walking around thousands and thousands of patients, either cured or being treated now with engineered cells or having their genomes modified. So I think no one's really against that. But it's when you, of course, talk about modifying traits that you that otherwise would be ostensibly, you know, not need to be edited or might be fine the way they are. Or, you know, what I propose in the book is that if we look at the radiation risk for some of the astronauts, you know, there's really, you know, two clear cases where I think you might be ethically bound to edit a life. And actually, you, you should do it rather than not do it. So one of them is it's based upon the principle of do no harm. You know, the, the first part of the Hippocratic Oath is to just do no harm to your patients. And that's very much what we do for clinical trials is to make sure that any risk you're taking uh, is is outweighed by the, the benefit. So that the benefit really is, is clearly the focus. And in the case of curing diseases, that's pretty obvious. You have a risk, you're modifying yourself, but you may have, you have less suffering and cure your disease. For two other cases, though, it, it really is like if you have uh, to go to a dangerous environment and your two options are go there, but don't be modified and die from the radiation. Or you have we have this therapy that we think could improve your chance of survival dramatically by activating radiation response genes or changing some of your maybe cells to be more tolerant of radiation, as, as I outlined in the book, 
you know, if we have the technology and we don't use it, then that would be unethical, I think, because you're sending people to a more risky situation that you could, um, you know, really prevent them from being in. And then the, the second place I'd say where maybe you're ethically bound to edit people is if you have two people who want to have a child, but they're unable to because they have a, you know, both say homozygous for uh, rare diseases uh, and they have no way of making a child without that disease and they want to have a healthy baby. Conceptually, I think people would get behind that. But we've seen with Haig Jinkui, who I've talked about in the book, that he uh, he crispered embryos, human embryos, and had them, you know, they're born into the world. And now he's in jail because he thought, well, I'll get rid of this CCR5 gene, which gives the entry point for HIV in their cells. So that concept, again, so it's laudable at first, like, oh, yeah, that would be nice to not have, you know, a risk of HIV because the parents had HIV. But um, but there, there was, too, it was way too early because we did, there are too many off-target effects. There's so much we don't know. Uh, in that case, the benefit does not outweigh the risk because there's so many ways to avoid HIV and to treat HIV. So that, that's, that's one case where the risk was too great. Chris, maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whenever we discussed long-range space travel, there was a focus on the concept of developing survival techniques, developing life support systems. When I was reading your book, there is more focus on re-engineering the life and not on creating life support system that uh, should okay. enable us to get to distant places. So are you looking for a balance here? Are you looking uh, to change change the balance here? <laughs> yeah, I, I probably I am pushing to change the balance or at least to consider changing it because I, I think 20 years ago, it was very reasonable to even 10 years ago to focus a lot on the life support systems and the tools just to keep the fragility of life uh, alive. Whereas now we know we have, we know a lot more about biology, like including twin studies and other astronaut studies we've done. So, you know, whereas before we didn't really even really know what to expect or where to target for therapies, but we know what to, where to look and what to expect and also what to treat. And we also have tools that can let us actually treat the astronauts. So I think we will have to do both. You'll need good life support systems you'll need to make sure the crew is safe. But then also we should really strongly consider how much can we have the astronauts themselves be a little bit optimized uh, for that long-term space flight. And so we, you know, and again, this seems unusual, but we we do this all the time uh, for mountain climbers who are going up to Everest. We have all the supplies ready in case they need a transfusion or we're optimizing their uh, hematopoiesis there. We, we When we know people are going to stressful environments, uh, we prepare them for it, you know, as, as best as we can physically, but also technically. So the phase two, uh, and, and you put a very interesting timeline, 2021 to 2040. Yes, so yes. we are in phase two, and mm -hmm. that is about preliminary engineering of uh, genomes. Uh, talk to us about that. Yes, that's some of the work that I, I just alluded to is happening, for example, for curing diseases in patients. But there, you know, in the next 20 years, we really will have this extraordinary opportunity to look at, you know, aberrant cells in your body and then clean them up or uh, find, you know, find, for example, a disease gene that's causing you blood disorder and just, you know, just cure it. So th there's multiple ways we can cure it. I describe in the book. Some of it is just you, you take away the gene, like you take out a bad one and put in a good gene that's doing what you want it to do. But there are other ways that I think are even more exciting that have just been deployed is where, for example, one of the treatments for the sickle cell disease is you basically have, you CRISPR a spot, but you actually don't take away a gene or add one or, or, or delete it. You just take away a regulatory element, something that's basically turning off the gene. It's like, it's kind of like going into a room and saying, oh, I don't want to fix the lamp. I just want to, you know, change the, the light switch that turns the lamp on and off. 
and that's all that it took to cure the disease. So I think we will learn a lot more, as I've described in the book, of ways to tweak not just the genes, but all the things that control the genes. And then also we can have what's called epigenetic CRISPR. You can actually, the same thing with the light switch. You can turn something on or turn it off. Uh, and I think we ha will have a really, a really glorious couple decades ahead of us of trying these out. There, there will be some setbacks. I'm sure some therapies will not work as well as we like. There'll be hard, some challenges that are harder than we can predict now. But that, that's true for any medicine in the history of medicine. So I think this is what we can see in the next 20 years and the, the, the discovery and application of all these new technologies uh, for, for genome editing. And then what you suggest in the book is that this should then lead to uh, cellular engineering. Yes. So we there you can actually create new kinds of cells. Uh, you can uh, Some of them are simple, like what are called CAR T cells, where you have these chimeric antigen T cells that you engineer to then infuse back into a patient to cure cancer. So we have multiple clinical trials at Cornell that are doing this now, where we actually create new kinds of cells that have different adapters, uh, different uh, abilities to recognize other cancer cells or really any cell. And so it's this extraordinary period where like, imagine if you could build a cell of any kind of cell that you want. So this is what we're actually doing though. And so I described some of the tools for making these, these chimeric cells in, in that chapter in that phase. And I think we're just at the beginning of it, but over the next two decades, this will eventually become very routine and very um, also less expensive, hopefully. Uh, next two phases, uh, I'm very keen to talk about them in detail and then yeah. dig deep. So you are then saying that cellular engineering, once uh, we have successfully achieved these capabilities, then we should prepare humans for long space journeys. So so yeah. what what is in your mind? What would be happening at that time? Uh, well, I think there the the yeah, this because there once we start looking a little bit ahead, this is there's also an inset in the book, is a really extraordinary things will start happening. Well, you can uh, have genomes that are protected genomes, I call them, so that they have an ability to activate additional genes in response to radiation, or you know, and or actually have even even alien genes, uh, genes from other species, embedded into human cells that give you additional protection. So one of the ones we study in my laboratory is a tardigrade gene called DSUP, which is a, a damage suppressor protein. So actually, as you get damaged, it actually helps you repair the damage and even prevent more damage. Uh, but it's a tardigrade gene. It's those little things called water bears that survive in the vacuum of space. We took one of the genes from tardigrade, put it into human cells, and it works extraordinarily well. So, you know, it's early stages. We don't have a whole human being that's been modified this way. But you could imagine this being a therapy, or if it works very well, it could be something where you've engineered it in some of the cells to ensure DNA damage does not become too rampant. And so I think this is what we're imagining a lot for the phase three section is, is these kind of hybrid and chimeric creatures uh, that can survive a lot more damage uh, by, you know, taking evolutionary lessons uh, from all, all creatures, basically. So basically, you are suggesting that we will move into the realm of directed evolution, or perhaps controlled evolution, and uh, but you have just given one example, taking these features, if I use the word from other organisms and then bringing in the genomes of human beings. Mm -hmm. But if we start doing this, then there are many options. There are many things and uh, features that different animals have, different species have. And the amazing example that you gave is that maybe we won't need food. We will acquire the ability of photosynthesis and we will just sit in the sun and, 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 and just 
be feeding ourselves. So again, I'll, I'll step back for a minute. So you gave just one example here. But if you start borrowing these things, for instance, hibernation from bears and all those things. So give us a few more examples. Yeah, those are some of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, we've been looking at bears as well as other animals that hibernate to try and understand their physiology and translate that to, say, sleeping pods for long space flight. Yeah. The one you mentioned, the chlorohumans, is a section of the book, which is very fun to write. Because, I, I mean, it's one of these simple questions like, well, if I was to be a plant, how much how much skin would I need? And I have a certain amount of energy that I need per day. You know, how what would I need for the amount of skin to lay out for, say, let's say one hour? You know, I just want to because you don't want to lay out all day because then you can't move. Then you're basically just a plant. Uh, so if like, I just want an hour and, I want to, and I'm kind of hungry, I go outside and I lay out my skin. How much skin would you need? So I did the calculation and you've seen that part in the book. It's about two tennis courts worth of skin that if you could lay out, you could absorb enough energy from the sun. Again, I only did the calculation because only half of your skin would be facing up, right? So you'd need that much skin. And then you could roll up your skin and go back inside and you'd be all full from enough energy. Uh, you know, so that would be maybe odd because your friends might start like playing tennis on your skin or, or doing something with it. Uh, so the, the social implications would be very intriguing, but I, I think it is interesting to think about if we could actually get chlorophylls, which is the basically a small organelle that's in plants actually to, to, you know, safely and successfully function inside of animal cells and actually transmit the energy, which is a big ask. But if you could do that, we, we know that we could you know, take their abilities, their lessons, and then use them, you know, for our own survival. So those are two of my favorite examples. Uh, other ones are elephants, for example, they have extra copies of P53 which uh, helps is called the guardian of the genome because it looks for DNA damage. And some of them, Asian elephants in particular, have 20 copies of this gene. We just have two copies in our DNA. And we, so we know it's possible to have you know, multiple, multiple copies of different genes that might help us. And so what if you had extra copies of genes that could help protect against damage? So these are some of the, the fun examples in the book I describe of, of ways we could kind of tweak the DNA. But, uh, but there's other things we could do. Some, one of actually one of my favorite ones is just what I called, um, you know, basically prototrophic humans, where you could have people, human beings, cells that could make all of their amino acids and all their own, uh, basically, uh, vitamins. So right now, we have to get, you know, nine of our amino acids we can't make. We have to eat them uh, from our diet. So the, the, the fundamental building blocks of proteins in our body, we can't make them all by ourselves. But there are some bacteria and other organisms that can make all of their own amino acids and build all their own proteins. They don't need a, an extensive diet. Similarly for us, for example, Vitamin C, we have to go get vitamin C or you get scurvy, which is a big problem in long missions in the 1700s. But we have the gene to make vitamin C in our genome. It's just been degraded over time from it's been basically mutated. It's now what's called a pseudo gene, meaning it doesn't function. But you could just tweak it, put it back on, make it so you can make your own vitamin C. And then you need less resources on your ships. You know, then you can have limes just with your cocktail instead of for survival. And uh, hibernation from bears? Yeah, they they uh, that is one where there are a number um, work by Joanna Kelly has shown that there's you know hundreds of genes that get really upregulated. A lot of them to control glucose metabolism right when they go into hibernation. It is a you know the the blood becomes so thick it's like molasses and it's really this unusual feature. You know they don't go to the bathroom right. That's the other interesting thing. You think about if you're sleeping for like two months, you think would I have to go to the bathroom? Most people you know wake up the first thing in the morning they go to the bathroom. But like imagine sleeping for a few months and so you know, the complex physiological change that they, you know, quickly and, and seamlessly do is something we've just begun to understand. But we have at least now some measurement of some of these uh, hundreds of genes that are activated uh, in bears when they go to hibernate. And then moving on to the next phase, 
a very interesting topic, uh, a very interesting research area, synthetic biology. Now, I just want to understand that uh, so far we have been discussing that we have uh, our species, we have our genomes, and uh, if we could bring uh, cellular engineering, if we could bring some genetic modification. So mm-hmm. synthetic biology, uh, uh, how do we get to that phase and is this a continuation or do you think some new strands of research will start at that time? I think we'll see both. The synthetic biology will help to continue some of the editing that we've done before. So, for example, you might be able to modify some of the engineered cells to have additional sensors or additional uh, post, post-translational modifications, which are the way you modify proteins to be more uh, sensitive or responsive. But I think the, the, what I describe in the book is at some point we may even, might even have you know, instead of these these four letters of the genetic code of life, maybe you could make it five or six and make entirely new kinds of creatures. And also that instead of thinking about DNA being the substrate of, of information, it could be RNA. It could be our purely RNA-based life forms in the world, which we know is lots of RNA viruses that are pretty much are on, on this planet. And if we start to look at other planets, we might actually find extremophiles or basic, you know, uh, our bacteria that might not look like or terrestrial life. They might have different kinds of nucleotides different kinds of bases that actually comprise their DNA and their code of life. And so I think I wanted to, in that chapter to think about as we start to explore and head out to other planets, we may find things that look impossible or alien to us now, but very well could you know evolve and survive on their own. So some of this has been borne out by research on Earth is that we know we can actually make various kinds of genetic code. They could have six or eight bases in your genetic code instead of four. You could have non-canonical bases. You can have you know ones that are completely... Uh, alien looking. They have all these side chains and look like they don't work, but then you can have them reproduced. So I think it really opens the gates as to what's possible out there is to have synthetic biology, you know, because for example, in Titan, it's really, really cold there. It's minus 270 degrees. Uh, It's, you know, basically liquid methane. Uh, We might have to have a completely modified organism that could even be able to survive there. So I think we have to put all these options on the table. Yeah. We can learn a lot uh, in terms of uh functioning of extremophiles and then if this capability is there to bring some of their genes or some of their functionalities in our genomes that uh, would be a major breakthrough i believe it it would be phenomenal it would be you know for example being able to process toxins or create new kinds of amino acids or nucleotides the these extremophiles are things like dinococcus radiodurans is a species that can survive so much radiation it's found in the cooling waters of nuclear power plants and you know, really is a really tough microbe that doesn't seem to mind much of anything. But, you know, some of the repair enzymes from it, and also some of the manganese transporters that we've looked at, we could start to think about putting them into human cells. And maybe that would be really the holy grail to survive the heavy radiation. And for example, going by Jupiter, so much radiation, most humans would be dead within a day or two. It's just too much radiation. So we'll either have to send modified creatures or modified people or both to, just to be able to survive. Or robots. Mm-hmm. robots. Robots are always on the table. And I come back to that at the end of the book, too. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Um, I'm not sure that there is an organism or there is a creature out there or a species where we can borrow something like expanding uh, our life, the span of our life. Yeah, there are some examples where we know, for example, some trees live for, some really giant sequoias live for tens of thousands of years. Uh, obviously, they don't move that much. Uh, but if they can avoid disease, they can often live, you know, uh, potentially for tens or maybe even uh, if, if they're around long enough, it could be hundreds of thousands of years. So we know it's possible for life to live that long. 
But for human cells, there's, you know, they only have so many times they can divide before the cells die. Their, uh, their telomeres often shrink over time. We also just accumulate a lot of damage. Uh, over time, we have somatic mutations. Cells become disrupted. Tissues get, you know, lodged with the chemicals and, and impurities and toxins. And it's, it's rough to be a body on this planet, right? So uh, we need some way to actually, I think, clean out all the damage that happens to our body, which we haven't quite done yet. But you know, there are longevity, there's work being done by many people taking metformin, for example, to try and live longer to control gl glucose levels. Uh, people, you know, even trying things like uh, resveratrol, although that turns out to not be that important for long, long life, as far as we can tell. But it does encourage people to drink a lot of red wine. So that makes them feel good, I guess. But um, so I, I think uh, I don't talk as much about longevity in the book, but I think uh, within it and outside of it, we'll need as much of that as we can get to survive on some of these really long missions to other planets. But but so far, you know, I, I'm not too I'm, it's a pretty optimistic book. Actually, I'm optimistic about almost everything except longevity, because I think we can push the average age uh, of, of death back. I think we can. But I think the maximum age hasn't really changed in like 40 years on top of all the medicine that we have accumulated. And that is because I think we need this is part of the ideas for engineering biology is we might not physically be able to last more than 130, maybe 150 years tops. Uh, because there's all the evidence in the world points to the fact that we'll have to fundamentally change probably our, our, our genome and our physiology if we, if we want to live longer than that. And, and I, I think, you know, either just the distribution has shifted, but the maximum has not at all changed. And so I think this is where we'll need a lot of uh, tools of synthetic biology, genome engineering to actually make us survive a little bit longer. And if all these different phases, uh, if we manage to accomplish what each phase uh, suggests to do, uh, then perhaps we reach a point where uh, something that is in the realm of science fiction these days, that we maybe start planning uh, a multi-generational journey and Absolutely. we start preparing ships uh, accordingly. Yes, yeah, generation ships, which actually is a very old idea. So it's, it's not at all my idea, but I, I was able for the first time to plot out which planets we could go to, right? So this was extraordinary is 20 years ago, we had no human genome or we just got it. We had very few exoplanets, planets outside the solar system that we even knew about. Whereas when I was able to sit down and write this book, it was phenomenally exciting because we have, you know, at this point, tens of thousands of genomes, basically evolutionary lessons that we can start to use for our own survival, which we have in, in, in a plenty. And there's thousands of exoplanets, several hundred that are in the habitable zone where there's liquid water, where we might be able to survive even today. And we know where they are, right? So it was a, a fabulous and fun uh, figure to make in the book of here's all the places we could go. We know exactly where they are. And we have, we've just started looking, right? We're just beginning. So we don't, we don't, there's probably going to be tens or hundreds of thousands more we'll find in the next probably 20 to 30 years that'll probably be closer, some of them. So if we can figure out a way to get people to get on a ship and have multiple generations live and die, we could get to different planets and survive. And then, and it is kind of a big ethical question. If you're, are you you know, basically putting someone in a prison and say you 600 people will all live and die in the same spacecraft. And so will you're the next five generations or in the book, it'll probably be more like 12 generations depends on thrust. But is that like, cause imagine being the person waking up in this third generation. You're like, Oh, I will live and die my whole life. And my only purpose is to get to this other planet that I'll never see. That's you know, kind of a big ask, but maybe they'll see it as a big honor. They'll think, oh, this is an amazing extension of humanity into the stars and how lucky am I? And it'll be you know, memorialized forever. Uh, but the end, you could have all of Netflix to watch and you have every sort of piece of uh, uh, culture that's ever been made by humanity. And you could still get uploads of the latest episodes while you're on your way to the stars. So I think it wouldn't be all too bad uh, as long as you design the ship correctly. Now, before we move on to 
further into future. I want you to give us a little bit more information and more details about the CRISPR tool uh, for gene editing and for gene therapy. Now, mm-hmm. there are ethical issues and there are uh, some, uh, some, some scientific views also that uh, does the tool actually do what it says on the tin uh, or it is just based on probability and, and 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 if it does not do what it says on the tin will we get there give us some details about crispr yes. yeah there, there's so the way it works is you have uh the, the crispr system involves a cas enzyme which is a you know basically an enzyme that is doing an, an assistance to the, the the homing beacon of the guide rna so at some point you have to design this guide rna which targets one spot in the genome and at that spot, uh, you know, the, the basically enzymes, say Cas9, or there's other variations of, of Cas13, Cas12 that target RNA, for example. Some target DNA. So there's different kinds of Cas enzymes. Uh, but what they do is they hone in at one spot and they create this break. And then the, and the damage that happens there could be bad, right? Was it, it enables it so you can swap out a different piece of DNA, but it does create damage, right? So a lot of the concerns early on were. Well, what if we're just making double strand breaks and, and and creating more damage, not just at one site where you want to change it, but what if it happens at thousands of other sites? And this has been reported in the literature. But David Liu is actually a researcher at Harvard, which I talk about in the book. He created something called prime editing, where instead of breaking both strands of DNA, you just because uh, DNA is double stranded, you just you swap out one strand of the DNA. So it's much more he called it prime editing as a way to just a much more gentle version of editing. And there's ways to confirm that you only edit one spot, not not say hundreds or thousands of spots across the genome. So, again, all this is very new. It's all being you know deployed really uh, in people only in the past four to five years, and so we're just at the beginning of it. But it is extraordinary to see that we already have prime editing, which are you know more active enzymes, or omega editing systems, or new systems that have been discovered that might be even more accurate than CRISPR systems. So. Uh, we've just, you know, begun this process of finding how the CRISPR systems work and how to tweak them and improve them. It's much like surgery. It used to be surgery had no anesthesia, had really blunt instruments that weren't clean, you know, and so surgery used to be kind of risky. You almost could die. The odds of dying in surgery, you know, in the 40s and 50s were pretty high if it was a big surgery. And, And I think we're in the early stages of genetic surgery. So the tools will get better, the implementation will get better, and the safety will improve. And it's not just the tool, it's the genomes also that there is still a lot unknown there. Uh, mm-hmm. There are parts of genomes that are not clear. We are still discovering uh, new yes. genes. And yes. then there are some patterns in the genome that seem to be some ancient viruses that are somehow riding on our genome. So that unknown is still there. So talk to us about that dimension of um, engineering your genome. So they're the eight percent of the human genome is is viruses basically. So you think, oh, I'm I'm just a human genome. It's like, well, you're ninety two percent human. If you look at lots of a lot of his viral DNA and RNA that's embedded in your genome, and the, the, we as you just mentioned, we found ten thousand new genes in the past ten years. And so we there there's not twenty thousand genes. There's actually sixty thousand genes total, and we're still finding all these different genes uh, as to and and figuring out what they do. So the fundamental process of discovery in biology, including in human genetics, is still ongoing and probably will for a couple decades. That's actually why I propose we don't really start doing big genome editing until really phase three or phase four. And that when we do it, we do intergenerational studies. We track what happened to the children and their children's children uh, whenever we start to deploy some of these technologies. So I, I think and that's because we don't know if there might be some other part of the genome that was affected that we weren't looking for but we need to be able to track people. Um, 
you know, for many generations to make sure it's safe before we try it on astronauts and people going to other planets. Now, when I look at, uh, for instance, phase eight, nine and 10, and uh, it is settling on new earths and, and in new places, uh, mm-hmm. more I am interested in and I'm keen to discuss these phases philosophically and not from science point of view, because sure. if we are going to do that type of genetic engineering and cellular engineering and modification, so 10 generation down the line, mm-hmm. people, and I'm not sure that I'll use the word people, people who will get settled over there, will they be humans? Will they be us, Chris? They'll still be human ish. You know, I think they'll, they'll, the human, there'll be enough human that will probably recognize them, but they will very likely be different. Like we look at Neanderthals now and we think, oh, that's a different species. It's close to us, but it's different. And that, that's only in matters of a few million years. And so I think we know, and even maybe, you know, some as, as recent as hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, the last of them may have walked around. So we, we know that they're not too, it doesn't take that long to have a divergent strain of humanity uh, appear, but it will be, but it might be even more accelerated because they're in much different environments with a lot stronger selection pressure. And, and they may be, they may also be robots. They don't have to be humans, but th- this duty towards the universe of, of caring, being caretakers for life also applies to any entity that has cognition. So that could be a robot, could be half human, half robot. I, I like to say in the book that I'm agnostic in terms of matter. Uh, where the cognition sits. You know, I'm okay if it's a robot, if it's a human, if it's a plant, as long as there's something that has an awareness of extinction and works to prevent it, I feel like life is being shepherd, shepherded then. So I, I think then it could be things, humans that don't even look at all human anymore, and that, that would be just fine with me. But then it leads to another philosophical question, perhaps slightly in the realm of, uh, uh, of uh, science fiction. Let us say that different type of people get settled on different type of places mm. and then they come back or visit each other. They will be very different. Uh, some research strand might have followed a different approach. Another research mm. strand might have followed a different approach. So, so maybe we will end up creating multiple intelligent species in the universe. I would hope so. I think it's very possible, especially given the amount of time we're looking at hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years on very different planets, that could very well happen. My, my only hope is that they don't all go to war with each other, uh, just as we have done throughout all of human history. I'm, I'm really hoping that at some point we would learn from the, uh, history and, and not continue to do so. But I'm probably too optimistic there because it, can, it keeps happening uh, even at current day. So for a minute, if you and I imagine uh, a, a scene from the movie Star Wars, so there are different entities uh, doing business with each other. So perhaps they are all modified uh, humans coming from same line. Yeah, they could, they could be very different humans that come from planets that have different gravity, different atmosphere, different temperature. My hope is that if you do it right, you have the greatest amount of cellular liberty, meaning you're, you can keep your cells safe and modify them if you need to, as well as planetary liberty. Like liberty is the ability to choose what you want and go where you want. And, and if, you're, if you have to modify an organism so much that it can only live on one planet, then you've taken away some liberty. If you can make it so it can be transient in its modifications and adaptable to multiple planets, then you've increased your planetary liberty, which is one of the goals I describe in the book. 
is that if we do our engineering correctly, we can enable people to hop around between planets and, and not die during the process. So I think this is uh, my hope is that they'll all be trading in at, the, at that Star Wars bar uh, where they're all talking and hanging out and everyone looks different, but still just wants to sit around and order a cocktail. Towards the end of the book, uh, you acknowledge that there are unknowns and there will be unknowns, but mm. then you give us a hint of optimism there. Yes, I think if we do this again and again, you think, okay, we'll go to one star, a different star. It eventually, it raises the question of, well, at some point, we can't just keep going star to star to star. We're going to eventually the universe will either collapse back in on itself or keep expanding, and which seems likely, and lead to the heat death of the universe. And if that's true, well, how do we survive that, or should we survive that? Or you know, and I argue that because we don't know if life will ever arise again in the next universe or a different universe or maybe this universe. Even then, we would have to try and figure out the new laws, uh, new applications of the laws of physics to try and restructure the universe itself and space time, quite literally, so that we could survive a little bit longer, because I think that's what life has always done. Life, if you think about it, is the only thing that really counteracts entropy. Entropy is always expanding and increasing, but except life is really the only counterbalance in the universe to increasing entropy. We're trying to organize the universe uh, and survive. So I think we would try and do the same thing if we could at the end of this universe. Uh, or... Maybe the biggest ethical question is if we had really strong reason to believe that the universe would recreate life again in the future, then we'd let ourselves die off. But I don't know if we would. We probably would fight till the end. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Chris, we are discussing your book, The Next 500 Years. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Is there anything else that you suggest we should touch upon uh, before we close this discussion? I think actually a lot of it is just to understand that a lot of the tools for this are things you can do even in your kitchen, like CRISPR, uh, if you want to think about sequencing, uh, talk about doing sequencing in space and on the moon. These are tools that are really available now. So I think everyone everyone could be a little bit of a, a genome engineer these days. It's it's not as hard as, it, as you think it is. So I would encourage people to not be afraid of it and uh, view it very much as your birthright to have this intelligence that lets you uh, access your cells and even modify them if you want to. Dr. Christopher Mason, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you and goodbye.